Well, happy Mother's Day, Bentry Church. Moms, we love you. Welcome. My name is Paul Trimble, and I am the senior pastor at Bentry Church, and we are, are all missing each other, but I'm glad we're here together for our Bentry family. I know we all miss each other, and it's great to see our little faces online for you guys that greeted us at the top of, uh, of our gathering today. Uh, I hope that we can see each other soon. Well, if you haven't already, go ahead and greet people online. Just kind of send them a quick note just right there on Facebook or on our Bentry uh, webpage there and just say good morning. Just check in. Let us know that you're here. Well, we study the Bible at Bentry Church, so let's go ahead and get this thing out. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 as we continue in our series, Genesis volume 2. It's the first book of the Bible easy to find. Well, in our study of God, of who He is and how we relate to Him, we all have our set of beliefs. It's what we call our doctrine. That's what we call a set of beliefs doctrine and you don't have to be a christian to have the doctrine no in fact everyone including agnostics even atheists have their own belief system about god they just simply believe he doesn't exist or that you can't relate to him that is a doctrine and here's what we know you act on what you believe you act on your doctrine now we can say we believe a certain way but it is the way we act that reveals our true belief system, our true doctrine. Now, for Christ followers, the church, we regularly study Scripture, and we compare that Scripture to what we think we know about God. And it's why Bible study is so important. It is the measuring line, the Scripture is the measuring line we measure all other so-called truth claims against. Now, why do we bring this up right now? Because just like a house that is built on a bad foundation, if our doctrine, our view of who God is, is based on a bad foundation, then our entire doctrine will be faulty. Are you with me? It is this little section of Genesis right here that we are studying that is so critically important to get down to understand. If we don't understand this dark section of our past, in the way the world works, we won't understand anything. I mean, if you want to know why life is so frustrating, here it is. If you want to know why there's such anger and violence and war, uh, war in the world, here it is. If you've ever thought, why is there such messed up sexual stuff? It's right here. If you've ever wanted to ask God, why is there so much pain? Why is there disease, suffering in the midst of beauty? God is ready to reveal it to you right here. And if you've ever been struck with the awfulness of death, a loved one or a close friend, this is the foundation you need to understand of why. And talk about evil. It is unmasked in this book. It is traced right down to the moment that we're examining today. But it takes study. It takes our attention. Indeed, it takes the power of God's Holy Spirit working in us to unlock the truth, some of the greatest truth of all time. And let me be clear, we can know the truth. And what I find so incredibly amazing about this book is that right in the middle of explaining why the world is so messed up, we, we discover love. We discover who God is. 
not just any kind of love, that's supernatural love to us from a, a God who pays the greatest price to rescue us from evil. Well, on this Mother's Day 2020, I find it so interesting that we just happen to find ourselves here in this part of Scripture today. And to answer the question, no, I did not plan it this way when we planned out the year. It just kind of fell on this, but God did plan it. Well, let's begin with the time of prayer. Would you bow your head with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we just come to you from all different places, physically and emotionally. Our thoughts are scattered. Our prayer is that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would just capture our attention and that we would not just hear your words today, but that we would engage just in deep concentration and study. We want to know you, God, and we want to know the knowledge of you that can change the way we live, the way we feel, the way we think, and certainly the way we act. So God, we offer our attention right now as we prayerfully consider what you are saying to us. And God, thank you for our mothers as we honor them on this Mother's Day. We're thankful for all the mothers at Bent Tree Church, the ones that have given us birth and the ones that simply mother us. They pour into us. God, we love them. We're thankful for them. We thank you for them in our life. Well, God, we commit our time to you. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we, we left Adam and Eve in the garden just after this, they had sinned. They'd both eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You remember? Eve, Eve, the woman, her name is not Eve yet. She's just called the woman, but we'll call her that. She had eaten first while Adam had watched. And when she didn't die, Adam ate the fruit as well. Now remember, their sin had been disobeying God. Their sin had been the same in one way, but different in another way. Eve had been duped. She had been deceived by the crafty serpent who we really know as Satan, the fallen angel, the enemy of God. But Adam had not uh, only sinned by eating the fruit, but also by not protecting the garden and certainly not uh, by not protecting his wife. And once they had both sinned, they had noticed that everything else had changed. They instantly had the shame about their nakedness. Genesis doesn't tell us how long the time was, but enough time passes in this day that this shame, uh, they sew fig leaves together to somehow cover their shame, at least awkwardly. And because of their shame, they had hidden beneath the very trees that God had created to give them life. As they hear God walking in the evening time god calls out to them where are you not because god doesn't know where they are but god wants his people the man and the woman to know where they are and the answer is they have died spiritually now no longer were they connected with god spiritually but they had died meaning they had been separated from god the proof of their separation was in their shame their nakedness but not only that, the entire world now was different. And we are about to find out how different it was. But primarily at this point, the difference was in their relationship between each other and with God. Let's watch as Adam responds to God's question. Look at this, verse 10. And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Can't you picture this? 
their relationship with God is broken. Adam had never been afraid of God before. But notice how the relationship has changed. And remember last week when we pointed out that sin makes us want to hide from God. And yet, the idea is absurd because God is omniscient, meaning he already knows everything that can be known. So remember, when God asks the question, he's not looking for information. He's wanting you and I to know. He is using the question to lead this man. Now look at verse 11 with me. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is the question. God knows the answer already. Why is he asking the question? Watch how God is connecting Adam's sin, his action, with what has happened to Adam. What had Adam done? Well, he had broken the clear command of God. Adam is clearly guilty, right? Now listen to Adam's response. The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. He admits it. He knows God is omniscient, but he explains to God what happened. But amazing to me, Adam, (laughs) he shifts the blame to his weaker partner, even though he was the one given the command and he was the one that was supposed to take care of the garden and to take care of his wife. Now remember, just this chapter before, chapter two of Genesis, God had created this wonderful gift for Adam, this woman. The man had been incomplete without the woman, and when God had introduced the man to his wife, he had been awestruck. He starts spouting poetry, right? It was his delight that, that, to his delight that Adam names his wife woman. He identifies her as his equal in value, yet very different in function, right? So that together they could fully reflect the glory of God together. But separately in their own ways, they were a unit though, a family, they were one. Now Adam throws her under the bus at the first chance. It's all her fault, God. But what's really key to understanding how far Adam had fallen into sin is he's really blaming God, isn't he? You gave me this woman, God. Must be your fault, God. By the way, isn't that how sin works? At least it does for me. When I'm cornered by God in my sin and I'm convicted, I point to others as their reason. I say things like, well, that woman shouldn't have worn that thing if she didn't want me to look at her that way. Or, God, you made me feel this way with this anger or this worry. It's your fault, God, ultimately. We always try to blame God for our sin. That's even when we blame others. Do you do that? Well, God doesn't respond to Adam at all. He moves on to the woman. Look at verse 13. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. (laughs) Here we go again. The woman shifts the blame too, doesn't she? Sure, I'm guilty, but it's, it's not really my fault. It's this creature. And by the way, you made this creature. In a way, she's blaming God just as much. 
So God turns his attention to the serpent. He doesn't even address the woman yet. Watch what the serpent, uh, the serpent isn't asked a question like the man and the woman because the serpent is an animal. The serpent has no soul. It, it, it has just been used by Satan as a way to tempt the first family. Now, who is God really talking to here? Not the sa- snake, not the serpent. It's Satan. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. The physical snake is a casualty in this. It is as if a physical form of the snake from this moment in history on would represent the scar of sin in the animal world. Like the animal world, the snake shows us that the sin occurred. The snake itself doesn't know anything, but pays the price of the sin of the man and the woman as well as the rest of the animal world and really all creation would bear the scars of sin. From that moment on, the snake has represented evil. It's why it is used in so many satanic and cultic practices. The snake is not evil in and of itself. It just bears the scar, the physical reminder of the cost of sin to all creation. Snakes from this time forward would move along the ground. By the way, we don't know if that means that snakes had legs or not. I get that question a lot. But it's interesting that the verse says that the snake is cursed more than any livestock, meaning domesticated animals. And domesticated animals usually have legs, right? As well, in the book of Revelation, Satan is referred to uh, as the ancient dragon. And dragons, in mythology at least, have legs. But what you've got to see here is that God is really talking to Satan. And what God is talking about is to say something's going to be, it's going to be very scary. But at the same time, we're going to see hope in the scariness, in the darkness. Now, I want you to watch this very closely because this involves you and I personally. In the first part of verse 15, God says this. I will put hostility between you and the woman. Who's he talking to? Satan, right here, one of the most important scriptures of all time. You need to understand this. Why? Verse 15 is the first mention of the promise. If you remember, this is what we have called the proto-evangelum. The proto-evangelum, that is the Latin word for first good news. You can also say proto-evangelium. This is the first mention of the gospel of all of scripture. Now, why call it a promise? Because it is the promise of God to redeem his people out of the hand of Satan. Right at this moment, as God says this in verse 15, the man and the woman are lost. They are aligned with Satan. Now, you can read over this and and not think too much about it. So let me walk through this slowly and let's look what this means. Keep focus. Who is God talking to? 
He's talking to Satan. The snake in a sense, but really, who is God talking to? He's talking to Satan. God is saying he will place something between Satan and the woman. What is it that he's placing in between them? He says he will put in place or create a hostility between Satan and the woman. And some people think God's saying between the snake and the woman and women will be afraid of snakes. Don't let that escape your thoughts. If something has to be placed between somewhere, that means that thing was not there before. God is placing hostility between the woman and Satan, not the snake. Why? Because the woman is on Satan's side at this point when God is speaking. Are you with me? Think through this. Watch. The man and the woman have been created without sin. They had believed God. Their faith was in God. But she switched to placing her faith, listen, her faith into what Satan had said and what she had seen with her eyes instead of what God had said. Do you see? Faith was at play either way. She had faith in God, but then believed she trusted and she said she had faith in Satan instead. And what he had promised, she switched teams, right? But God says, I'll take care of that. Now you two, the woman and Satan, you're going to be enemies from now on. Now, that still does not save the man or the woman, does it? But the next part starts to explain how God will save them. If we looked at verse uh, 15a, let's put B with it. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. It switches now. It looks forward into time. I want you to notice something here. Very interesting. There are two groups of offspring, right? Meaning the descendants out there. It's not like Satan's going to reproduce. No, that's not it. But that throughout this future time, future generations, God is talking about, there would be a group of Satan's descendants and his followers. And at the same time, there would be a group of descendants from the woman and because of it takes a woman and a man to produce descendants, the woman and the man. Although he's talking to the woman, this is important. And although God is talking about the woman, it takes this relationship of the family to reproduce the offspring. So God is talking to both of them. Now, do you get this? Two groups of descendants, one from Satan, one from the man and the woman, and God is placing hostility between these two future groups of descendants. Let me point out something to you. Uh, you know, but you may not have realized it in this setting. The entire Bible, I'm talking about the whole thing, is the story of hostility between these two groups and how God in his purposes, is working through both those groups to uh, carry out his plans for the world. His providence is what we have called that. Now, Jesus, in his parable of the goats and the sheep, is talking about these two descendants, right? He separates the goats from the sheep. And the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, you can read that on your own sometime. 
You'll remember the story. Jesus tells his followers that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who planted a field of wheat, but that while people were sleeping, the man's enemy came in and planted weeds among the wheat in that field. But not just any kind of weed, one called tares. And that's significant because this kind of weed looks just like the wheat does until it starts growing uh, the little pieces of wheat, the little kernels of wheat there, those little heads. They look the same until that part. Well, the parable goes on with the man who planted the wheat talking to his servants who work in the field that have discovered this, these tares. And they say, Master, we saw you plant good seed. Why are there weeds in the middle of the wheat? And the man who planted the good seed says, this is my enemy that did this to destroy my crop. So the servants ask, do you want us to pull up the weeds right now? And the man tells his servants, no, you might accidentally pull up some of the wheat if you do that. He says, wait. The parable takes this very interesting turn. The man says, let the wheat and the tares both grow up together until harvest time. He says, then you can pull up both of them and then separate them. The ones that have the wheat will go in the barn. And then the, the ones that don't have the wheat, those are the tares, they will go into the fire. Sound familiar? Heaven and hell, good and evil, the descendants of Satan. It is that parable and others like it that Jesus uses to tie the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation and every 60, all the 64 books in between those two. You see, back in Genesis 3, as God is talking to the man and the woman and the serpent, and you need to understand that this is what we call a theophany. A theophany is when we see God pictured with a body walking with the man and the woman each day in the cool of the evening. God is talking here in Genesis and appears to have some kind of physical body. And we know that because Adam and the woman heard the sound of real feet hitting real ground as he walked. And it's God, it's what God did every day, apparently. Adam and Eve knew God was coming because he did it. Every day, he walked with them. But you need to understand that God the Father in Scripture is never mentioned with a body. In fact, the Apostle John tells us this in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, John says. No one's ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. If that's true, and we believe that it is, it's Scripture. This is not God in the garden, not God the Father speaking to Satan, standing with Adam and the woman, but this is Jesus. Now I get this may shake your view of everything. This is not just a theophany, it's what we call a Christophany. A pre-incarnate Christ appearing and speaking here with the man and the woman. There are tons of these all through Scripture that we've looked at over time here. But here's what I'm, why I mention it. If we go back to what Jesus has just said to Satan in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, watch what he says here in the last part of this verse. We'll call this part C of it. He will strike your head 
and you will strike his heel. This is important. Jesus tells Satan, he, this male descendant of the woman, will do what? Strike your head, Satan. Jesus is saying, this future male descendant will strike your head. Ha. Huh. Now, this word strike, I think it's better translated crush. Your Bible translation may say that exactly. Crush your head. To crush something means to kill it, to destroy it. Now, we know the story of the gospel, don't we? About Jesus coming as a baby born of a virgin, living this righteous life and being killed on a Roman cross and placed in the grave dead, but then being raised back to life on the morning of the third day. The story of the gospel, that's what we place our faith in, right? Look at that last phrase of verse 15. It's talking about the crucifixion and you will strike his heel. A strike to the heel is one from behind. It's an unfair attack. And look where the attack comes from. The ground. The foot. Remember, Satan is appearing at this point as a snake. Jesus was attacked, wasn't he? Unfairly, but not unknowingly. Jesus is the one who is attacked by Satan at the cross. He is wounded at the cross, but, not, but only temporarily, right? because he is raised back to life on the third day. It's Jesus that destroys Satan at the cross. He crushes the power of the enemy at the cross. That's what Genesis is talking about. Do you see why this, this first mention of the gospel is so critically important? Because from this moment on, Satan would be watching the birth of every child born to this first woman going, is this it? Is this the one that's going to destroy me? Be, I've got to be careful here. And from every woman of her descendants from that point on, right in the middle of this mess of sin and darkness, God would bring to light to the world and this gift to this woman and this man that their heir would someday bring about their redemption. Let's look at verse 16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Notice that the woman and the man are not cursed specifically, but what happens is they must live under the curse of the world. Satan is cursed. The earth is cursed but not the man and the woman. They just live underneath or in the curse. The curse will be lifted someday when Jesus returns. It's very interesting to me that the woman is given this hope that this promised Messiah, this Savior, would come from her giving birth and yet at the same time that birth would be painful and hard. Every woman that has ever delivered a child knows this is true. And not just the delivery is painful, is it, ladies? It's hard, and yet it's full of joy. Moms, answer this question. When do you stop being a mom, a mother? When do you stop delivering your children? I mean, raising them. Never. Like the Virgin Mary, thousands of years after this woman, Eve, these women would give birth to the promise that would set them free, Christ Jesus. 
Well, that's where we'll leave them for this week. And we'll pick it up as God addresses Adam next week and how now their marriage, how will the world work after the fall? Well, let me close our time with just a few thoughts. As a Christian, believers in Christ as Savior and Lord, we look back at what has been done for us on the cross and in Christ's resurrection. We believe that we place our trust in that God can redeem us by the grace he offers through his substitutionary death on the cross of Jesus. When we say we believe, it is not just some mental ascension, but an act of faith that we believe at the core that Jesus is the Christ, this long-promised one from Genesis 3. And in doing so, we are saying we reject any other way that people tell us that we can be saved. Listen, no other religion will work. No other faith will work. We are placing our faith in Christ and we are rejecting Satan's offer to be on his side. When that belief occurs, we are saved. We switch teams. We look backwards to that event. We look backwards to the event of cross on the Christ, uh, Christ on the cross. And that's what crushed Satan. But for Adam and Eve, they look forward in faith. They believe God. We study this uh, all the time, but we'll study it a ton next week. What I want you to see, though, is we are saved the same way as they were, through faith. Back in verse 15 of chapter 3, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel is shared, and they believe. Jesus, in the midst of the man and woman's sin, stepped into that mess and said, Satan, you cannot have my precious children. I will buy them back. Although the rest of their life, it would be hard, but they would have that promise of redemption. That's what they looked forward to. In that one day, they had fallen into sin and out of relationship with God. And then through faith, they were brought back into relationship with God. And one day, redemption will be true. You see, you and I believe in Christ. We look forward, just like Adam and Eve did, to seeing the full meaning of what that relationship will be when we are at home in heaven because the Lord God, the love He has shown us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You in just of awe of what you have done. God, as we have opened these scriptures, as, as we have looked of the mess the first man and woman made, and yet you stepped in right in the middle of it and promised that you would come, and you did. God, we remember that in right in the middle of our mess, our life, our sin that you stepped in. You called us from spiritual death into spiritual life. I pray right now for my brothers and sisters listening at their homes that if they are a Christian, that they would begin to live like the, they have faith in your return, God. They do have faith, but help them to live like that. 
Help them to base their doctrine, their view of you, God, on who you truly are, not on what they think you should be. God, I pray for us as Bent Tree Church, as believers, we would uh, just reflect who you are and how we live. God, we want to follow you. And if you're not a Christian, listen to me. Just as you continue in an attitude of prayer, this is simply how you become a Christian. Simply believe on Christ as Lord and Savior. The Father sent Jesus. Jesus has come, died in your place, taken your sin. If you believe that, trust in it, place your faith. The Bible tells us we are saved by grace, the grace of God, and we believe on that grace through faith. Listen to me, if you believe that is a gift right now, you have been regenerated, you have been made new, simply tell God you believe, and now, Start to follow Jesus. Can you do that? Just pray that right now. Well, as we end our time together in prayer, God, I thank you for each person that has placed their faith in you. God, just during this time of pandemic and all of the worry and just the weirdness of this world, God, we pray that you would use us as a church to be a beacon of light. That in the worry of today, you would use us to draw people to a saving relationship with Jesus. And it is in Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.